0: 90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science.
1: Hey, Shannon, how are you?
0: Oh, pretty good. Just wrapping up finals week, so that's exciting.
1: Uh, Always fun, and then summer.
0: (laughs) Yay. (laughs) Can't wait.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I tell you, we're definitely getting the... uh, the springtime weather suddenly we've had some severe storms and hail rolling through here even a few tornadoes
0: uh yeah and we're waiting on a storm right now so hopefully uh, we get this recorded before before that hits but of course since i'm waiting on it as any good you know storm nerd knows that means nothing's going to happen
1: <laughs> it's true yeah. but you know i have ensured the safety of this area for quite a while <laughs> because this week i installed a weather station in the yard <laughs>
0: way to go <laughs> hope you enjoy recording yeah. all those sunny days
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly uh, oh. now I, I mentioned some time ago that i picked up this used davis weather station and so we bought a four by four post and surprisingly now i'm used to digging in arkansas ground where you go about four <laughs> inches and it's solid rock here i dug a 24 inch deep post hole uh, with no problems and didn't find a single rock. Oh,
0: man. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful.
1: Yeah, it was nice. So, you know, put the post in, buried it all up. And now I am working on getting the data online. As it turns out, Davis wants you to buy, I think for about 150 bucks, their software, which I don't want to use, <laughs> and then you get this little plug that lets you get usb data out of the box mm. but as it turns out if you uh are a little cagey and try to figure out their pinout, you can use a five dollar adapter board from SparkFun and do the same thing <gasps>
0: are you sure you want that out there in the world
1: <laughs> we, we should share the knowledge i'm actually going to do a blog post about it
0: <laughs> that's awesome um that's funny because this weekend we were moving around our davis weather station which i won online I 16 years ago, 17 years ago. Um, and so we we lost connectivity with it and, you know, we were like, yeah, we'll just throw it out. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, if I knew how to work this stuff, this wouldn't be a thing. We wouldn't have to throw this out. But we, we regained connectivity. We're good.
1: <laughs> ah, very good. Yes, yep. Never threw out good instruments.
0: I know. I, yeah, that's a tipping bucket rain gauge, man. Those were my words. <laughs> to my husband. <laughs> so... It's safe.
1: (laughs) Yes. Well, you know, we've got another great topic that is a geological, meteorological phenomena that one of our listeners actually emailed about, right?
0: Uh, Right, exactly. So we heard from Steve on the topic of fulgurites, which, as John pointed out in his reply, are very near and dear to my heart. And I don't know if lots of people are obsessive about fulgurites, but it seems like they are that's what i've run into and i don't know if a lot of people even know what they are in general though
1: yeah i think so and in his email he said i wasn't sure if you guys knew about these and he said well i had never heard of them until you because you have done work with fulgurites."
0: <laughs> yes yes i have <laughs>
1: so shannon what is a fulgurite?
0: um well let me take this hour to tell you about them <laughs> So, basically, when I say fulgurite, I mean a piece of lightning-struck rock. All right? It's a little more complicated than that. We'll get into that. Um, But I I remember these from when I was little because we'd go to Florida all the time, and you find these hard chunks that look like little tubes of sand on the beach. And it's like, how does this little tube of sand form? And what they are is they're from lightning striking the beach and fusing together the rock, and it makes this... Or fusing together the sand and it makes this cool little tube and there you got a piece of lightning struck sand it's kind of cool
1: yeah and so this actually as many words derives from latin right yes. so fulgar is lightning <laughs>
0: yep <laughs> <laughs> i love that one i was like oh okay yeah that makes sense
1: <laughs> uh-huh. oh. so it's it, it's a quite literal (laughs) translation Uh but it's not just when the lightning hits sand either there are different types of fulgurites
0: right so uh, there's a couple of main types of fulgurites and uh, you could get a rock fulgurite so when lightning strikes a rock that's already a rock uh when lightning strikes the other types are kind of all lumped together in my mind so sand soil or caliche which is just carbonate rich stuff um unconsolidated soils and stuff and whenever lightning strikes those it actually fuses them together and creates a fulgurite
1: right and i I love your one of the ways that you've described these before is as petrified lightning i know which is is so cool super cool (laughs) Uh,
0: in my native science class we talk about turquoise being petrified water and so i yeah maybe i just really like these sort of um colloquialisms
1: (laughs) yeah but these pieces of petrified lightning they can actually be really pretty looking, and they can get pretty large.
0: They can. Um, I'm going to post a picture of the fulgurite we have on display in our sort of little geology museum um, in our department, because it's quite big around. I said that they look like tubes, and so some of them can be super tiny tubes. That's all i ever found as a kid but some of the tubes can be over a couple of uh, centimeters across so they can be pretty large the one we have on display is pretty big like that and um some of them can be up to 10 meters in
1: length which is crazy yes <laughs> i don't know how you would extract that <laughs>
0: i know in uh, one piece uh, i i've seen an article once too about one that hit and it hits soil and um so it was a soil fulgurite and it went down like 15 feet or something like that ridiculous and, you know, they just kept going and going and kept finding, you know, this tube from this fulgurite. So that's really impressive.
1: Well, and, you know, I have to wonder with these because so you get a lightning strike, which brings a massive amount of energy in. Mm-hmm. Very quickly heats up the material. Let's mm-hmm. say it's sand, fuses it. But it's cooling sort of like a dike would, right? So okay. you have cool material on the outside mm-hmm. and heat's conducting away. If right. that heat could conduct away fast enough, which we would have to do some back-of-the-envelope calculations, but wet <laughs> soil is going to conduct heat pretty fast.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah.
1: I'm I'm wondering if you get a similar strengthening mechanism to a Prince Rupert's drop.
0: Ooh, interesting.
1: So, I mean, maybe not to that extent, because you're not taking molten glass and putting it in cold water. Right. But it's... you're taking molten glass and putting it in damp sand.
0: Well, right. Exactly. And...
1: And maybe that's one reason that these are so easy to find and don't just instantly get crushed up.
0: Oh, Maybe that's it. that is a good point. Um, I'm trying to think of the robust nature of the ones that I've handled, which are all pretty tiny. And they've been pretty good because, I mean, you can dig them up. And, yeah, they're not getting crushed when you're walking around. So that's a cool idea. You just want something that you can shoot a gun at, basically, right? Is that... <laughs> <laughs>
1: no, no. I think this, uh, th- this involves, again, like I said, we'll have to do some uh, thermal modeling and our listeners that do that, uh, we can take those submissions as our puzzler for this week.
0: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's a, that's a really cool idea. And I mean, because what you're doing with sand, which is the majority of what we're going to talk about, because to me that, I mean, that's the, that's the fulgurite that everyone knows about are these sand fulgurites, mostly because they're the pretty ones. (laughs) Um, No one cares about a bunch of soil that got stuck together. Um, (laughs) But On the outside, you've got this conglomeration of sand, and then on the inside of the tube is this superficial glass layer formed from the lightning heating the air up and basically melting the silica.
1: You know, it's true, but even though these are naturally formed materials (laughs) and they're formed from, you know, a, a geologic media they're not minerals
0: <laughs> poor little fulgurites they're mineraloids which is just as fun to say but yeah they don't meet those <laughs> those very stringent criteria to be a mineral and that mostly is because of the crystalline structure and chemical formula parts of that you you remember these parts of the of the mineral formula
1: right so they don't have a well defined you can't say that all fulgurites are you know da. right and they're a glass is an amorphous material, so it doesn't qualify as a mineral.
0: Yeah, ice makes it. Sorry, glass, you don't make it.
1: Yep. <laughs> but so these mineraloids have another fun name as well.
0: They do. I was hoping you'd say it because I don't know how to say it.
1: <laughs> I, I'm going to say lechatite.
0: Oh, okay. That's not what I would have said.
1: <laughs> well, what, what would you say?
0: I uh let no i like that i think i would have made it a little lechator little right i've never heard of this word um but so this word I was, this is
1: another one of those fun things that happens when you find words in papers right and <laughs> exactly. there's no pronunciation key <laughs>
0: um which is funny because i've written a paper i mean not a scientific paper a class paper on Fulbrights. and i did not know this word even back then but um this word that John just said, correctly I'm sure, (laughs) is the class of silica mineraloids. So it's all these fake things that aren't quite minerals. And many of them aren't formed, so John said earlier, natural processes. That's part of what makes a mineral minerals, that it's formed by a natural process. But there's a lot of silica mineraloids that fall into this that are man-made. So they're not minerals because they don't match that Definition, because they're, like, slag or something like that.
1: Right. And, you know, some of the things that you would not think are minerals, we've talked about ice, obviously, mm-hmm. but a, yeah. uh, another mineral that you might not think of, uh, kidney stones. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So those have regular crystal structure. They are man-made. <laughs> <laughs> but... It's considered a natural process. Yes. <laughs> so, yes, those are those are technically minerals, and they don't fall into the silica mineral Lloyds category, oddly enough.
0: Uh, yes, but because they have this crystalline structure and a definite chemical formula. And so, yes, yes <laughs> fulgurites, you're at the mercy of whatever your sand is made of or your soil or your caliche, and um, that's what gets fused together. So you could never assign it a specific formula. And also, I mean, you can make fake fulgurites, too. And then you can have all kinds of pretty colors, but we can put in some pictures you know, this, of those too.
1: This sounds like an experiment waiting to happen doesn't it? here at the house. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, yes, it does.
0: <laughs> Probably not inside, so, but, you know, we'll see. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: but what, what you end up getting, right, is you're, you're locking into solid form the discharge path of the lightning. Yeah. And lightning generally doesn't just hit as a single bolt at a single point on the surface.
0: Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, all electricity, and I, I love this. Um, these pictures or anything that does this, um, you've got this lightning strike, and it disperses based on its little conductivity pathways, right? And so a lot of these shapes of these fulgurites match those conductivity pathways. And if you've heard of Lichtenberg figures... And that's the sort of branching discharge pattern from electrical currents. That's basically what a fulgurite is. Is It's like a, a physical model of a Leichtenberg figure.
1: Right. And so you can get these, you know, you can buy them in gift shops sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, burned into surfaces of wood or into cubes of acrylic if you put an electrode in the top and discharge a very large bank of capacitors through it you'll get this these discharge paths in there and they're this uh, dendritic structure right. really.
0: like trees so they're this cool tree thing and uh, the ones that are always in the gift shop seem like they're always some kind of cool color in a big acrylic block
1: yeah. But it's the same thing, except it's cool that it's a natural, yeah, (laughs) a natural one of those, and it really is a three D representation of lightning's discharge path. And you're talking about an incredible amount of current through a relatively small patch of ground. Uh, So it's a lot of heat.
0: It's so unbelievable to me that that's yeah. It's like you can touch a lightning strike, right? It really is petrified lightning. Um, And so, of course, like. Lightning isn't the hot part, right? Lightning heats the air. Um, But an incredible amount, like 50,000 degrees Fahrenheit.
1: So that's 30,000 Celsius. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. And... <laughs> Hotter than the surface of the sun, right? Um, and that's plenty hot enough to melt silica or any of these other minerals, you know, soil, or to affect rocks if it's actually touching a rock. And it, we're talking about time scales of a second, right? So you're not going to melt a rock, um, but you will fuse together unconsolidated materials at that time and uh, temperature.
1: Right. And if you think that's surprising, I mean, I don't know how many people have been working on their car or their lawnmower or something that has a battery in it and accidentally shorted the battery. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you're getting a a decent amount, you know, tens of amps probably from a lawnmower battery, Mm -hmm. potentially hundreds from a car battery. Uh, You can weld your wrench to things. (laughs) (laughs) And that's... Orders of magnitude less energy than we're dealing with in a lightning strike, and the lightning strike delivers the energy in a much more acute
0: fashion. It does. It does, in fact, do that. Um, so, like most lightning intensities, average around thirty kiloamps, um, but there have been some that have been recorded close to two hundred kiloamps.
1: Right, and you know, you may say, "Well, how do we know this?" There are ways to try to back out the current from lightning. Have, you know, calibrated lightning detection networks and so on mm-hmm. but one of the primary ways that we do lightning research is actually by shooting rockets with little wires that are grounded up into the sky at a research facility in florida and they trigger <laughs> lightning so it strikes <laughs> their instruments
0: i love it so it's like see how f- not far we've come since ben franklin <laughs> <laughs> yep
1: hey we guys got rockets instead of kites <laughs> exactly. but we're doing the same idea
0: <laughs> let's go throw some of the metal up in there and see what happens <laughs>
1: <laughs> and so that is how we indeed know roughly what the current right, yeah. in a lightning bolt is. Oh. And of course, they can get all these near field measurements as well. But that is.
0: Probably another show.
1: <laughs> yes, that is definitely another show.
0: Uh, <laughs> that is but in true. addition
1: to all. So you, you strike the ground, you heat up the rock, and with that heat. You also get an increase in pressure,
0: right? Um, so this is another cool thing, and this is really in the case of these sand fulgurites or you know anything with silica grains in it, um, and you can form enough pressure in that small amount of time to form these things that we call PDFs—not Adobe PDFs, but planar deformation features in the quartz. And I mean, you know what PDFs are from a totally different process, right? Right. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So this is really cool. So you can form these planar deformation features in all kinds of geologic processes. The exciting one that we like is meteorite impacts. Um, You can also form them in very violent volcanic explosions. But I didn't, I actually haven't even seen this in a fulgurite before, um, but apparently it happens. You can also form them in fulgurites. And so as you pressurize um, the quartz, it produces this very specific lineated group of cracks in the quartz, and so you can tell what kind of pressures the quartz has been subjected to based on the orientation of these pdfs
1: right so similar to uh shot cones right
0: mm-hmm. right yeah. exactly yeah so
1: that's really and, cool oh it, it is and another cool thing about this as many natural processes are uh Fulgurites are fractal as well.
0: I, I hadn't even... I mean, it makes sense, right? It, it totally makes sense. It's not something I had thought about, but man, now I really want to go get some and put them in an SEM, you know?
1: Yeah, so they're they're self-similar, and I would be really curious to see what you would find since you do have access to fulgurite <laughs> mm-hmm, and access mm-hmm. to an SEM.
0: Yeah, yeah. And this is how science gets done, everybody. <laughs> Let's stick this thing in here. And,
1: you know, th- <laughs> th- that that could also... Uh, tell us something about if you can see any kind of cooling structures in there. About my initial idea on these things being like Prince Rupert's drops.
0: Yeah, yeah. Actually, it totally would. Um, I'm gonna have to. Hmm, I'm gonna have to break into that geology case and break off a chunk of that big fulgurite and get it in there.
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> exactly. Yep. But I didn't not... say that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, nobody's gonna listen to this. It's yeah. Fine. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> uh, well, so I, I said you were familiar with fulgurites earlier, but maybe not so much from the formation details, but from looking at their magnetization, right?
0: Right, exactly. Um, so I'm a paleomagnetist, and there are all different kinds of magnetizations that can happen to rocks. So I'm generally interested in chemical magnetizations, so magnetizations when some kind of fluid flows through rocks, uh, something like that. I've also done a lot of looking at shock magnetizations. So are there? can you hit a rock hard enough, say with a meteorite, and produce a magnetization that way? But um, I did a project <laughs> looking at lightning-induced remnant magnetizations um, as seen in four different fulgurites that I had acquired.
1: Yeah, and this is such a cool idea because you're melting rock so you're taking it above its curie temperature you're passing a massive amount of current through so there is a magnetic field associated with that Mm
0: -hmm. thanks right and then you're rapidly
1: cooling the rock and locking that magnetization in
0: right um so who cares about that well most paleomagnetists don't actually um Mm -hmm. That really is it's cons- noise, right? Exactly. So it's considered noise, <laughs> but one person's noise, right? So yeah. um, there was this really cool study that was done in 2002 um, by Vier and Rochette in France. And they said, you know, we're paleomagnetists. We often find this lightning signal in a lot of our rocks, which is characterized by ridiculously high intensities. Um, And so you get really mad when you're actually looking for, you know, an ancient magnetization in a rock. And you come out with these really high-intensity rocks that the magnetization decays super linearly. It's this beautiful-looking thing. And you're like, oh, lightning. (laughs) And so instead of them being upset about this, they're like, you know what? Maybe we can do some cool, cool physics with this. And what they did was they went and they sampled concrete at the base of a tower structure in France. Okay, well, those probably get hit by lightning quite a bit, right? And because right. in the concrete, they knew that there were magnetic minerals, so that was fine. So they thought, hmm, if this stuff has a, a stable magnetization, it's high intensity, and it has, you know, what we know decay of a lightning-induced magnetization looks like, then maybe we can say something about the lightning,
1: All right, that makes sense.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, So it was really neat. So they did all kinds of sampling around this tower legs, right, that are stuck in these concretes, in the concrete, to see, you know, where is it the strongest? Can you go far away from it? Are we going to see this everywhere? And they found out that um, lightning strikes will affect the rocks. So in this case, we're talking about concrete being a rock. Uh, Within two meters of the strike. Okay, um, I think All I right. would have thought it was a lar- larger effect than that,
1: but oh see that's exactly i I'm surprised it's that big,
0: yeah oh, interesting
1: because my my view on it was if you if it really is a Curie temperature thing that's happening and not uh, that you're you're overwhelming it uh-huh. uh, I mean I don't know if you get a strong enough magnetic field, I suppose you can remagnetize without going above the Curie temperature, but from a Curie temperature argument. I can't imagine. I, I can see getting the rock two meters out warm enough, but I can't see it cooling while there's still current flowing to magnetize it quickly right. enough.
0: Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So, so
1: there has to be something other than the Curie temperature going on here. There has to be some just oh, there the sheer intensity of the magnetic uh, yes. field yep. that you're remagnetizing some of these minerals.
0: Right, and and the size of the minerals makes a big effect on on you know what. If you've got tiny minerals, they're super easy to remagnetize versus larger ones, so that also has a huge effect on that temperature range. Um, but no, okay, that's that's interesting. I guess I just you know fear lightning so much that I figure it's super destructive. <laughs> so two meters surprised me. <laughs> um,
1: well, and I mean that's again another that that could be a physics two oh one test question. Oh, absolutely. Calculate the intensity of the magnetic field two meters from a lightning strike. With twenty kiloamps of current flow. yeah
0: yep yeah, that is exactly right um, so back to Vieira and Rochette um, so they they sample this stuff and what they wind up doing is doing all kinds of experiments which are other shows in their self about how you <laughs> how you look at the magnetization that's stuck inside a rock and they figured out using some cool equations and modeling of both the amount of magnetization that this concrete could take versus the amount in this concrete that was struck by the rocks and they worked out the intensity of the lightning
1: hmm. so that's that's pretty cool you can tell something about about the lightning from those samples and you know i i had to ruin it here i went ahead and just did the calculation look at you <laughs> so you put your assuming- ampere's law
0: away okay Well, you know, assuming
1: that we're talking about a wire and we're going to calculate the magnetic field around a wire, uh, if you have a wire with 20,000 amps flowing at a distance of two meters, you're looking at about 0.002 Tesla.
0: Oh, okay.
1: So, So, I mean, that may not sound like a lot, (laughs) right? Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, that's totally within the realm of... What we measure.
1: Well, but if you convert that, so that is two million nanotesla. Mm-hmm. And the Earth's magnetic field, you're looking in the twenty thousand ish nanotesla range. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So you're you're two orders of magnitude greater than the Earth's magnetic field, two meters away from a garden variety lightning strike. Two
0: meters away. Okay. All right. That's a pretty yeah, good fall. Assuming off.
1: that it's a. Assuming that it's a wire and all this other stuff. But yeah, yes. yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, always so many assumptions. <laughs> I was I was looking back at my uh, my paper that I did on this, um, which I'll get into here in a minute. I have three slides in my presentation about assumptions, so yeah, <laughs> it's pretty good. That's all I think of when I think of meteorology. So many assumptions.
1: <laughs> um, well, so <laughs> so okay, so we, we we made this ridiculous calculation in real time here, mm-hmm. and. We know that people have been able to quantify lightning intensity by looking at these, but you might be thinking, well, what are the chances that when you go out into the field with your diamond-tipped chainsaw, <laughs> uh, what are the chances that you're going to drill into something that's been struck by lightning? It seems uh, like it's really low.
0: Yeah. Man, you would think, but I mean, it's not. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> it's really not, which is very disappointing. Um that's for sure (laughs) so it's i think i've always thought that maybe you could do some kind of like paleo elevation modeling or something like this based on finding these lightning induced remnant magnetizations because you can go out and you've sampled it with me john out in colorado you know we're on top of this mountain we're like let's drill this rock it's really right here it's prominent it's great and then you get back to the lab and you're like oh it's all lightning because it's a huge prominent rock at the bald peak of a mountain <laughs> so
1: it's you know the uh, the paleo nldn the national lightning detection yes, network yes uh, ex-
0: <laughs> that's exactly right it takes quite a bit longer to get that data back but
1: <laughs> right but that's exactly and right it's you know, if, if the lightning affects all rock within a two-meter ring, around it, two-meter radius ring, mm-hmm. and again, with some hand-wavy back of the envelope math, you can say that every 10,000 years, there's one lightning strike per square meter.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. So mm-hmm. it's
1: every 5,000 years, the rock is affected. Like, exactly. whoa, that's <laughs> exactly. statistically not a good number.
0: <laughs> exactly. Which is, you know, what sucks to be a paleomagnetist, because you'd go, you'd do all this stuff up front to measure, you know, these, all this stuff. And you don't know until you get back to the lab and you've cooked the crap out of your rocks three weeks later. <laughs> and then you look at the data finally after all this work and you're like, oh, look at that. <laughs> Which is how I like to think that Vera and Rochette probably were like, nope, we're going to make something out of this now. <laughs> we're going to write this paper and figure out exactly. the <laughs> amperage of lightning. <laughs> out of all this, you know, supposed noise, which is exactly what they did. And it's exactly what I did with these fulkerites. It was super cool.
1: Yeah, so how did demagnetizing your samples work?
0: Yeah, so um, they they did a really robust... measurement of you know away from the foot of this tower and all this stuff and did all this statistical comparison and I had gathered four tiny fulgurites because they had to be tiny to fit into the magnetometer <laughs> um from actually from one of our meteorology professors <laughs> who had them and um it didn't work on a couple of them to tell you the truth but I wound up averaging uh, three three of the four together and I got when I did my back calculations, um, 60 kiloamps was my average amperage of these lightning strikes. I made the assumption that all these fulgurites were from the same strike, which was completely not true. But that's well within the range of, you know, the lightning amperages you would see. So.
1: Yeah, I that's in the ballpark.
0: Yeah, yeah, I was very excited. The other one was not. It came out to, let me say this, because this was an amazing number. It was like 200 mega amps or something. <laughs> I was like, no. Ooh. yeah, something else was <laughs> happening in that rock. But but three of the four worked out really good. Um, and it was really Well, and neat. For,
1: for paleomagnetic samples, that's not a bad Exactly.
0: That's, that's an amazing statistic for paleomagnetic um So it was really cool. So uh, Vier and Rochette, it, you know, determined this lightning currents can be recreated. I mean, they've only done, the, there was only this one study on it, but it was really neat. um And it said that this sort of paleo mag method may be more accurate than other methods of lightning detection. And they were talking about the SAFER or the lightning detection network in France that was around at the time. So you could, mm-hmm. you know, you know where it strikes, you could go out and you could say, hey, this is what. We think it is. You could actually measure it using PMAG and figure out what it was, and then you could use that paleomag data to calibrate current light or lightning current detectors.
1: Hmm, that's a really interesting, isn't it? And non-intuitive <laughs> connection.
0: <laughs> I know, I know, and th- that was in in their conclusions. And I wonder if that actually um, actually got put into into practice at all. Um, it was it was cool. It was a way to turn this PMAG noise, which, like I said, is I feel like it's more devastating than other crappy data because you put so much effort on the front end of PMAG and it takes so long to figure out if your stuff's going to be successful. Right. <laughs> so, so it was a great usage of this noisy data to tie back into you know a useful scientific calculation. Hmm. Yeah.
1: Well. I think we about nailed fulgurites, but they're a really cool phenomena that I don't have any samples of. I would love to get my hands on some. And uh, I kind of wonder if the folks down in Florida ever decide to make any during their experiments.
0: Yeah. Um, I will say, I think it's shocking you don't have any samples of fulgurites. (laughs) (laughs) I've been waiting to use that. (laughs)
1: yeah you've been waiting on that one for a yep, long time i sure have uh, <laughs> no i just never have found the opportunity to uh, get my hands on any but if the opportunity arises you can bet i'm going to take it up and send them to you for demagnetization yeah exactly
0: <laughs> so i can stick it in the magnetometer awesome
1: oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah <laughs> when nerds have research instruments
0: exactly Well, I hope that answered some of Steve's questions about fulgurites. Um, I don't know if it did, but I certainly like talking about them, so, you know.
1: Oh, absolutely. But I think we should move on to everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday.
0: Yay! (laughs) This is just a Steve-centered show today, isn't it?
1: It is, because (laughs) Steve also sent in this fun paper. And I... We, we do have had some fun paper submissions from other folks. We have them all in the queue, and we have some other shows queued up that y'all have suggested. So keep sending in your feedback. It is coming, in, I promise. Yes, yes. But this paper is <laughs> great. <laughs>
0: I didn't appreciate it, um, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, well, so-, so
1: you can you can do this at home. You yeah. can try this experiment yourself.
0: <laughs> you can. And it doesn't even have anything to do with popcorn or high-speed cameras.
1: <laughs> no.
0: Um so Steve's in this paper in plus 1 and it's uh itch relief by mirror scratching, a psychophysical study. And this is And it's
1: by Helmchen at all. Mm-hmm. And this is <laughs> at first I thought it was completely absurd. Yes. And then reading on more and hearing some of the reasoning behind why they think this happens and its potential therapeutic applications, I now think it's fascinating.
0: It is so... Strange, But I will say that just reading the word itch and scratch over and over again made me sit here and itch and scratch while I was reading it. <laughs> this oh, is the unappreciated consequence. And I'm like, oh, my God, I feel like I have, like, mosquitoes or fleas or something because <laughs> I just kept reading it and caught myself scratching the whole
1: time. <laughs> Great. So th- the basic methodology of this paper is they had subjects come in they would give them a very small injection, mm-hmm. and I, I think it's probably, they say they use this three needles, so I think it's just needles that are dipped in it, sort of. Yeah. Uh, it's histamine dihydrochloride, and they gave 0.03 mils of 1%, which makes you itch for about 12 minutes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so they had they had a rating scale for, like, how bad it itches, right, that they gave to everybody which <laughs> I love that the 100 out of 100 on the itching scale was stop the experiment until you scratch my arm. <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> so they would do this on one arm, kind of on the, the middle of the forearm, mm-hmm. uh, palms up. And on the other arm, they wouldn't do anything, but they would put a red dot on both so that it looked kind of like an inflamed patch. Right. I, I, think, it's, I think it's... said the arms histi- looked identical.
0: I think it said the histamine actually made some people turn red, so they didn't want, you know, there to be any... Obviously, you know which one's itching more, but they didn't want any visual differences between the two.
1: Right. Yep. And so if you scratch the itch, it obviously is going to itch less. It provides some relief. Mm -hmm. But what if you scratch the wrong arm?
0: Yeah. This didn't even make sense to me as to why you would do this until, like you said, they provided some background. Um, But what's creepy is if you scratch the wrong arm, sometimes it relieves the itch.
1: But only under a very specific set of conditions, which is that you're viewing it in a mirror.
0: So you're faking your brain into thinking you're scratching the arm that was injected. And it provides... An amount of itch relief
1: right and a a very significant amount yes but to be clear you're not actually doing the scratching yes they scratched you and they had an absurdly calibrated (laughs) scratching mechanism (laughs) Uh, which they used this little bent strip of copper and they practiced on a scale until Uh. they could get just a little bit of bend in the copper, and they could reliably scratch with 100 grams plus or minus 5 grams of force. I thought that was amazing. everybody got the same scratch.
0: (laughs) Exactly. And it was a very slow scratch, they said, too, which I thought was hilarious. (laughs) Uh, this This harkened back to my coffee shop days where we used to have tests about you know we would have to tamp down the espresso and we would have to do it with a very certain amount of pressure and so you'd either fail or you'd pass and that was what this reminded me of is these poor grad students sitting there with this little copper itcher (laughs) trying to make sure 100 plus or minus five
1: grams (laughs) well and you know i thought it was funny too they said that all the study participants so they had 26 participants they were all male they were all right-handed 19 to 38, which tells me that they're using grad students yep. or undergrads. <laughs>
0: uh-huh.
1: And that the fact that they had 26 and threw out six means they did 20. Six of them didn't work out, so they called six more people in. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yes, exactly. <laughs> so, so
1: that they could get an in of 20 oh, for significance. That's hilarious. <laughs> uh, but so they did this one with the mirror. And if, you, if they scratched the arm that was not injected without the mirror then it didn't really make a difference. Which makes sense. But if but if they scratched the arm with the mirror, yeah, it tricked your brain. Then they did this test with, uh, they put a webcam on your arms and they wrote a little MATLAB script that would mirror, so they to show you your arms non-mirrored, they would show you the arms mirrored, mm-hmm. they would show you with both mirrored, so it looked like you'd have two left or two right arms. Yeah, <laughs> You know, they tried all the permutations uh- here. And it turns out it only worked when your brain thought that you were scratching the other arm. So mm-hmm. the idea here is that your brain combines all of these different stimuli, It combines your sense of touch and all of your other senses along with whatever information it's receiving from your body about where it thinks it is in relative space, but... It turns out it trusts your eyes the most. It gives them a disproportional amount of weight, if you want to think about this, as inputs to an algorithm. And it turns (laughs) out that it chooses poorly in this case and gives the most weight to an unreliable source.
0: That is super interesting. I didn't think of it that way. That is, yeah. Yes, it does. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: So it's a, it's a poorly weighted algorithm when you're looking in a mirror. Uh, <laughs>
0: Thanks brain. <laughs> which it's one
1: of those things where, yeah, if you take an algorithm and you know, a computer and feed it data yeah. that is. Yeah. Let's go do the same thing. Um, mm-hmm. I, I thought that that was really fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> I, can't,
0: I can't believe that just the perception of scratching it was enough to do it. and And it did those two experiments, like the, the video one, you know, where you can't see anything versus the mirror one, you know, came up with the exact same results was super interesting. Because I really thought that the ones with, you know, the two left or the two right or whatever would also provide the same sort of relief, but it doesn't.
1: Right. And, okay, so at, on the surface, and what I was thinking I was reading up to this point, was this is interesting <laughs> but absurd. <laughs> yes. um, and then they started talking about the clinical and therapeutic uses of this, mm-hmm. and Apparently, one of the things that happens when somebody loses a limb, we know they can still feel the limb as if it were there, is a phantom limb. Mm-hmm. Yep. So a phantom hand or phantom leg, and apparently sometimes these itch intensely. Mm-hmm. But you can't scratch the itch because the limb isn't there. But there's a possibility that if you use this mirroring technique, you can scratch the limb that is still there. Looking at a mirror, your brain will think you're scratching the limb that it thinks is there, but isn't, and, and then you'll it get goes some itch relief.
0: Goes away. That's unbelievable. It seems like such a little thing, but I've heard that those, those, you know, those sensations can be super maddening.
1: So, oh, I'm sure. And yeah, I mean, to know that there's nothing you can look down and there's nothing there, yeah, but it's itching.
0: Yeah, exactly. So, you just, gotta, I mean, how, do you,
1: how do you combat that?
0: Exactly. And that's awesome. You just stick a mirror there and trick your mind with your dumb eyes and figure this and do this. Like, this is. Unbelievable to me.
1: And another potential use involves stroke victims who have lost function on one side of their body. Maybe they can't use their left hand well. Mm -hmm. But they can look in a mirror moving their right hand and help reteach their brain how to use their left hand. That it's there. Because you're making your brain think your left hand's doing things. You're helping rebuild those pathways.
0: Mm -hmm. And there's even even a third usage, which is probably a more common thing, is that if you have something like psoriasis or eczema, you know, a very itchy skin problem that you're not supposed to scratch because it makes it worse, you can also do this to help relieve that.
1: Right. So this kind of next time I have... An itch, I kinda wanna try this.
0: <laughs> man, I itched the whole time I read this paper.
1: <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> it was
0: just awful. I'm like, I know nothing's happening, but it's just that suggestion, you know, like if you find a tick on you and then you're like, I'm crawling with ticks, same thing. Mm-hmm. Mind tricks, man. Not cool.
1: Well the other good thing about this is this is an open access paper. So you can go mm-hmm. download it. You can see the pictures of these poor grad students with their red, swollen <laughs> little spots on their arms, yep. and the little piece of copper being used to scratch their arm for them
0: by an expert scratcher.
1: <laughs> by an expert scratcher, yes. Uh, oh. And this overall, I thought was a fascinating study. Yeah. And it's it's a medical study, but not from BMJ. So thanks, yes, Steve, for exactly. sending this one in. <laughs>
0: I thought you'd be excited about that too.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But if you have a fun paper for us or another show topic that you would like to hear about. Like I said, we love accumulating these and researching these because y'all have some really fascinating questions. In fact, there are still a couple that I'm working on because I haven't been able to find anyone that knows the answer yet.
0: Oh yeah. Those are so, good.
1: <laughs> yes. So we would love to hear your suggestions or if you want stickers, we're always happy to send <laughs> stickers. Yes. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us?
0: Well, you can always send us your mailing address and we'll send you some awesome Don't Panic stickers and send that to us, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Um, we're always on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. And we are also in the Slack chat room. I'll probably be in there a lot since I'm trying to you know, avoid grading papers. So <laughs> check, check it yeah, out. Yeah, there you go. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. We love hearing from our listeners in the chat room and some of the discussions that go on there. So be sure to check it out. Absolutely. And remember, until next week, don't panic.
0: It's not an exact science.
1: Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.